I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and you are listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information to normalize cannabis through the stories of entrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by a fellow Michigander, Jeffrey Hank. He's the founder of MI Legalize. How are you doing this morning, Jeff? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, I had a chance to talk with you a few days ago for an article, and now here we are on the podcast. Um, but before we talk about Am I Legalize and, and that whole uh, movement, why don't you tell me about your background? Who is Jeff Hank? How'd you end up you know, on the forefront of the legalization movement in Michigan? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, ask myself that a lot, but... <laughs> How I got involved in, in a nutshell, I mean, I've always been a cannabis enthusiast. I've always believed that um, marijuana should be legal ever since I was a kid. I wrote a paper in eighth grade about it, actually. And um, back then, it was really hard to get information about anything. I had to try to get my dad to go to the local bookstore and pick up a copy of High Times. And that was like back in the day where High Times was behind a like a sheet, like it was almost pornography, you know, yeah. and uh, now things have changed so dramatically, but I think what really got me into it was about eight or nine years ago when I started practicing law and I just had a natural sort of drawing to marijuana law and, you know, a lot of people I knew were, were getting in trouble with it and, um, you know, just seeing the injustices in the court system. So I got really active right when Michigan's Medical Marijuana Act first came into place um, doing both uh, the business end of things, but also criminal defense law. I've transitioned more towards, um, you know, the industry side of things now, uh, thankfully, because, you know, we're scaling back a lot of the, the, uh, the criminal aspects of these things. But, um, you know, it was just a number of things that, that led me to think that something had to be done. And then I got involved politically. I ran the Lansing and East Lansing uh, decriminalization campaigns. These were small grassroots campaigns. Lansing was uh, 2014 and, um, well, actually it was 2013. East Lansing was supposed to be 2014, but it got bumped to 2015. We actually had to litigate it to get it on the ballot in East Lansing. Each of those elections we won with uh, 65 and 67% support of the people. And those uh, authorized um and the local levels in Lansing and East Lansing, anyway, the use, possession, transfer, and transport of an, an ounce for adults 21 and over. So um, I got involved in that. And then, you know, at, the, at about the same time, I had a friend who was one of the Okemos 7 uh, medical marijuana compliant facility here in the in Lansing area. And uh, they were busted by the feds, and he got sent off to prison in West Virginia. I've had clients who I believe actually had a client, I think believe died once an elderly client who died of the uh, stress of being prosecuted over petty marijuana violations. So, you know, you see that stuff time and time and time again, and you know, from your own personal experience, how uh, safe and useful and even fun or medically healing cannabis can be. And you know, you shouldn't be uh, illegal. I felt as a, as a citizen, basically I had a duty to do something more about it. So a couple of years ago, uh, began to try to organize these other activists statewide. In Michigan, we have a particularly active group of people who have decriminalized or legalized uh, at least 21 cities at the local level. <clears throat> so there were all these people out there doing these things in Saginaw and Jackson and Flint and Grand Rapids, but there was no state organization organizing everybody to do something. And you know, looking at it and talking with, with people, it was a real daunting task. Nobody wanted to take on this major project, which had never been done. There was sort of a conventional wisdom that you needed a million or $2 million to even bother attempting to try to make the ballot. So if you didn't show up with that money to some of these uh, cannabis activists, basically they just discounted the idea that a statewide ballot initiative would ever be, po would ever be possible. So, you know, I kind of have been going through this over the years and, and, you know, being involved at, both as a lawyer and as a political activist and Finally, things all just kind of came together in one strange way or another. I ended up as the executive director of, of MI Legalize, and uh, the story kind of goes on from there. So let me ask you about your law school experience a little bit. You said that you had you know, ended up kind of working specifically on cannabis issues. Did, was there anything in your law school training that prepared you for that, or was that something that you really undertook on your own accord? Yeah, it was really on my own accord. We rarely discussed marijuana in law school. When we did and I had a chance to opine on it, I'd always say it was, you know, the marijuana laws were unconstitutional. So I just had that disposition and having a lot of friends um, into cannabis, you know, uh, 
looking to get into the industry and, and also just getting into trouble. It was just sort of natural. People would come to me for, for legal assistance and, you know, then it became a career. So nothing in law school prepared for whatsoever. I don't know if that's changing these days, but I'm kind of hoping it is that, you know, in the next few years, they're not even talking about marijuana being a crime in law school. So, but yeah, it was all, everything I got into was sort of, um, on my own and in conjunction with with other people and sort of just evolving with this cannabis culture i mean like i said a few minutes ago i remember back in eighth grade where it was hard to get a copy of high times locally there was like two bookstores that had it and you wouldn't even want to go to a gross store because if you went to a gross store you were probably under the uh surveillance of police you know but in that short time period of you know 10 15 years the culture has changed dramatically where even though in, in michigan twenty thousand people a year are still arrested for marijuana there's a lot of people who feel and act like almost like cannabis is legal, particularly with the medical situation. Now, of course, it's not, but that's how rapidly the consciousness is changing where these things are sort of open now. So I've just kind of evolved along with that, with the cannabis culture, uh, like, like so many other people. So why don't you give me a brief history of cannabis policy in Michigan? Uh, we have medical out here, uh, but... The, the, it's kind of a gray market, sort of a, it was, you know, they're, they're, they're putting legislation to fix that. So, so why don't we just start with a brief history of cannabis policy in, in Michigan and, and what the mar- medical marijuana laws are and how those are changing uh, because of legislative action. Right. So uh, if you go way back, you can go back to like John Sinclair days where he was actually in prison for selling two joints to an undercover officer in the Michigan Supreme Court struck down the law. And for a short period of time, there were no laws against marijuana in Michigan. And that's was the uh, the genesis of the hash bash in a, in a nutshell. Um, flash forward to 2008, you had Michigan's Medical Marijuana Act come into place, which really changed everything um, and in a good way, really. I mean, there's still been a lot of problems with it, but it opened the door. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't like that. There were people who just supported marijuana as medicine. There were other people who said, look, this is the way legalization comes. And, you know, I know when I voted for it back in 2008, I, I thought that, that, hey, I'm happy to vote for this because I'm hoping that legalization does come. Um, so we had several years of sort of a, a wild west, if you will, for lack of a better term, where the state didn't really know how to handle it. Local governments didn't know how to handle it. And it was sort of wide open to anybody to sort of just do what you wanted to do within the confines of the law, which were very vague and gray, as you said. Um, that's caused a lot of problems. For some people, it's been a blessing. Um, for other people, it's been a curse. Uh, law enforcement, if you happen to get in the, on the wrong end of the gray area of medical marijuana, you know, it can ruin your life. So we've been through this for, for years and years. Last year, uh, the state enacted this new Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act, along with a, with a couple other supportive acts, which will license these five categories of cannabis commerce businesses, uh, cultivation facilities, processors, uh, safety compliance facilities, which are like testing labs, uh, transporters, and uh, provisioning centers, which um, are uh, you know often called dis- dispensaries colloquially. So um, that's kind of where we're at. You know, it started with the Medical Marijuana Act that did not have any sort of framework for commercial dispensaries. So we've had dispensaries in Michigan for quite some time, but they operate in this in this legal gray zone. And now that's being clarified. And um, how, did, just, how did yeah. you guys react to the legislative action? Well, so for MI Legalized, it was a strange, strange day because we had, um, on June 1st of 2016, we turned in 354,000 signatures, which should have been enough to put us on the presidential election ballot uh, where President Trump was elected this last year. We were kept off the ballot by the state, um, and we litigated that all the way to the United States Supreme Court and did not get any relief. However, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court, the, the biggest day really was September uh, 6th, 5th and 6th or so, where the Michigan Supreme Court made its ruling to keep us off the Michigan ballot. That was sort of the last big chance for us to be on the ballot. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court would have happened after the fact probably and, you know, would it be 2018. So that very next day, literally after um, eight, eight or nine years almost of no action by the legislature, no, no concrete action to actually create a regulatory system for medical marijuana. The day after we were de- denied by the Michigan Supreme Court, the state Senate, run by conservative Republican legislators, pushed out this bill. So it was a strange day. On the one hand, we celebrated it because it was a step forward for many people. Um, but I describe it personally as uh, 
akin to like the people being robbed of their election the day before. And then the next day, sort of the king and his minions throw out some breadcrumbs to the peasants. <laughs> we were supposed to have a law which would have completely legalized marijuana, which would have um, created this regulatory basic skeleton structure for a system which didn't have secure transportation of marijuana or a lot of this other heavy bureaucracy. So for us, it was, it was like, it was, it's, it's hard to describe because on the one hand, you're happy to see that things are moving forward. I mean, we went from a law which allowed people to go to 12 plants personally or 12 plants as a caregiver for a patient to, you could apply for a 1500 plant license. And as of now, there's no restriction on how many of those licenses you can have. So yeah, you get excited and happy to see that maybe, maybe people are going to be growing 10,000 plants or something. That's great. And it's going to take people out of legal gray zone, but it wasn't the way we would have drafted the law and statements were actually made that because we were not going to be on the ballot now, some of these senators actually felt comfortable moving forward because we would have, wouldn't have had these conflicting laws. So it's a very strange scenario. Uh, I have uh, the word to describe it. Um, it it's hard. It, it's, it's really hard to say, and I'm trying to think of the, the, right, the right word. It's bittersweet, perhaps, is the word, because you're happy on the one hand, and the other hand, it's kind of a slap in the face. Um, but that's, you know, that was an initial reaction the morning after we had, we had just been denied by the Supreme Court, which was a, a serious blow not only to MI Legalize and myself, but everybody else who worked very hard to make this happen. So, so wh- why don't you briefly tell me, t- tell the listeners about, you know, in, in a nutshell, the, the 2016 campaign that was thwarted in the courts and, and by legislative action, uh, because I think that it's important uh, that people understand exactly what happened to a campaign that had the, the petition supported, had the signatures. Right. So it's a, it's a long story, but to give you, have, you have to have the history to really understand it. So I'll try to make this as quick as possible. Going back to the 1963 Michigan Constitution, citizens in Michigan had a right to place constitutional amendments or statutory initiatives on the ballot. And there was no time period restriction on their ability um, to do so. If there was any, it was the period between gubernatorial elections, which is, which is four years. Um, that's the way petitions were done in Michigan until about approximately 1972. When there was a woman in Grand Rapids who came close to succeeding putting an initiative on the ballot that would have um, restricted legislator pay and pensions. And as a result of that, the legislature actually changed the law at that time to allow for only 90 days to petition. So you went from either a a four-year, if not infinite time, to 90 days. That caused a big brouhaha at the time. It was done by legislators to stop a petition, which was going to take away their pay, basically. Uh, that Around that same time period, Michigan's famous attorney general, Frank Kelly, who's called the people's uh, attorney general because he served as so long and he had so many um, substantial sort of civil rights issues come about during his tenure. Frank Kelly issued a, an attorney general opinion declaring that law unconstitutional saying that the legislature could not limit the time period of Michigan citizens to petition. So uh, for 13 years, the state didn't enforce that law, and people had this longer time period to petition. So flash forward to 1986, and there's two two more petitions that are sort of controversial to the political establishment. One was to enact a death penalty in Michigan, which we were the first state in the union to ban the death penalty. We've never had the death penalty at a state level in Michigan. Um, the other was to... Uh, allow citizens to vote on utility rate increases, which the power companies didn't like. So Consumers Power Company actually sued, and they went to the Michigan Supreme Court to enforce this um, new rule, this new law, which said that a signature over 180 days had to be validated again um, to prove the person was was a registered voter. So you could petition beyond 180 days, but you just had to go through a separate validation purpose. So for 13 years, that law was not enforced. Consumers Power sued to get it enforced and kept these things off the ballot. In that same year, 1986, Michigan's Board of Canvassers came up with a rule, their own policy on how you validate those signatures. And they had two ways to do it. You could either get everyone to sign again, sign an affidavit saying they're registered to vote, or you would go to the local clerks, which which there are 1,500 in Michigan, and have them validate the voter signatures. So for 30 years, nobody tried to do this. Um, we looked at it and we said, look, we're a grassroots campaign and to make the ballot in Michigan. And there were 13 campaigns that tried to do so last year. Nobody made it. That's how hard it is to do because it normally does cost a couple million dollars. It's very hard to have a dedicated group of citizens, you know, work full time for six months all across the state. So we looked at it and we said, well, well this is interesting. Um, you know, the law gives 
just this option. No one's tried in 30 years because it was, it was so hard to do. But what, you know, we were able to do was we, we hired some, some consultants and some computer people, and we were able to use modern technology basically, and a lot of elbow grease, and actually verify every single signature. Wow. So when you turn when you turn these signatures into the state, they only do a sample, and they check five hundred to four thousand of them to, to do a sample to see if they're valid. We checked every single one of them in preparation to have these local clerks do it, and we went to the Bureau of Elections. And we actually testified, and we testified in the legislature about this. Once the state realized we were about to qualify. The legislature again decided to change the law. This is thir- you know 30 years later now. Well, they had again decided to try to restrict it to just a firm 180 days, which means we would lose approximately five months worth of our signatures. So we continued to lobby the um, the board of canvassers to change this rule. They and we went to them. And we said, look, at you know, it doesn't make any sense for us to have everybody sign an affidavit again. We might as well have them sign the petition again. Except in Michigan, it's a crime to sign a petition twice. So we're, like, we're not going to tell people to do you know do this and possibly go to jail. The Bureau of, of Elections agreed with us, and they said in writing under oath, we had more than 180 days to petition. So we then said it's it's very laborious also to go around to 1,500 local clerks and have them validate all these signatures, especially when Michigan law provides for a centralized database, which wasn't created until like 1998. So basically, we kind of came along. We put these different laws together and the pieces of this technology, and we realized that no one had just tried to do this because they thought it was too hard or too difficult or were maybe just unaware of it. That was more likely most people didn't realize you could even do this. And when we showed we could do it with the technology, uh, they shut us down. And, and they, they, they not only did not – the Bureau of Elections staff actually recommended three different new rules, which made it easier for us to validate these signatures because everyone acknowledged it was – it was kind of like absurd and almost impossible to do. And that's how it was designed in the 1980s. It was designed to make it impossible to do so nobody did it. Well, we figured out a way to do it. And the result was the Board of Canvassers, which is a four-person appointed board, two Republicans, two Democrats, they split 2-2. The Democrats supported changing the rules. The Republicans didn't. But when it came down to it, they because it's a 2-2 split, no action occurs. So they never adopted a new rule. At that same time, the legislature passes a new law Six days after we submit our signatures, Governor Snyder signs it, and um, that's used as basically a justification not to count our prior signatures and not to create a new rule for us to do it. So a lot of people get confused about it, and the media sometimes will report that we didn't do it in enough time or we didn't have enough signatures or whatever. That's not true. We did have enough signatures, and we did do it in enough time. The law actually didn't go into effect until six days after we turned our signatures in, so it's not really accurate to say that new law uh, prevented us. It basically though was used as a justification for the board of canvassers to not take any action to counter signatures. So we we filed a lawsuit, and um, the judge, the first judge of the Michigan Court of Claims, which they they do not are not required to give you a hearing. They didn't even give us a hearing, despite you know these hundreds of thousands of Michigan. We had over a hundred thousand extra signatures we submitted, wow. and we didn't even get with five lawyers on the case. We didn't even get a minute in front of the judge. The judge sits on the case for two months. And then uh, denies our case, says we make a good argument, but fails to address any of the any of the legal issues we 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 bring up. And then of course we appeal it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and never get any relief. So you know, very frustrating. And we put all this work in, spend a lot of time, money, and energy. But the the great thing about that, TJ, is it brings us to where we are now. Because having done all that, um, we're prepared to to go forward, and we've established this network and this experience, and all these all these activists statewide have been brought together. People know each other now from the UP to Detroit and from Grand Rapids up up north, down south, east to west. We're connecting people. And people, now that we're on this new petition, we even have, I say this all the time, I have little old ladies who come up to me, sometimes even like the grocery store or something, they'll say, I saw you on TV last year, I remember what they did to you, I remember what they did, the governor did to you or whatever. And they're, they're saying, I don't even support marijuana necessarily, but that's not fair play. And they'll want to sign the petition this time around. And the other amazing thing about it is, and you know, the state delayed us now for two years. I think we're going to be on an 18. I think we're going to win an 18. But they put this this idea now in so many people's heads that they don't play fair and that they're trying to suppress progress on marijuana law that I bet you you're going to – I mean I think you're going to see above 60 percent yes vote, if not like 70 percent by the time we get to 2018 because people are tired of Michigan government. They're tired of both parties and getting jerked around. And this is a perfect example of our democracy being sort of undercut. I mean, we, we read it, led a true citizens-led campaign. Um, one of the fair criticisms people can make about us is that we were, we were disorganized or that there wasn't like a central, uh, you know, sort of process. Like, you know, I get that 
finger pointed at me a lot, which is okay. And, but I like to tell people, you know, well, that's because we weren't, you know, a multimillion dollar campaign funded by some billionaires or by, uh, the, you know, the Koch brothers or by organized labor or somebody, we were a true citizens group. And there hasn't been a true citizens group that's filed a petition in Michigan in decades because it's so hard to do. And it takes so much money. Now we did raise some money and we had one substantial large donor that helped us get to that point, but it was all done by, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And because of that, I believe we have created the conditions amongst the Michigan public that uh, they're ready for this and they're even more ready for it because of what they saw happen. And, you know, this all ties into bigger picture issues of trusting the state and the governor and Flint and all these other things. So I could go on and on and on, but that's where we got to where we're at today. And, you know, people are really excited now and we had no help from national groups. And as a result of what we did last year, a lot of people had said Michigan was on schedule with the national groups uh, for 2020. And uh, we bumped that up to 2018. We're one of the last big initiative states. There's only 24 states in the country which have the initiative process. And when it comes to marijuana, you know, most of the big ones have already gone. Um, Florida being the exception, but Florida requires a 60% vote of the people to change the law. They just squeaked medical by, you know, recently. So I imagine you'll see Florida and Ohio coming up in, in 2020, if not if not before then. But Michigan um, is sort of the the target, if you will, for people who support cannabis reform and probably will become the target for some opponents also now because we're the last sort of big state, save, you know, Florida and Ohio, which are not teed up right now. So, you know, we showed uh, the country we're ready. We had a lot of great support from people, um, everybody from like moral support. You know, we didn't have the financial support, but everybody from Tommy Chong to Willie Nelson. Uh, Willie Nelson's got a great video out um, called I'm Not Dead Yet. He's drinking out of an MI legalized coffee mug in the video. <laughs> and uh, he's in Southern Living Magazine doing interviews, drinking out of it. And, you know, we had Tommy Chong show up the Bash and DJ Short and all these other cannabis personalities saw what happened here. And uh, DJ Short was has given some of my uh, favorite public talks on this. He gave a good speech at Hash Bash this past year. And he talked about how Michigan in particular, we, you know, we try to create a model here. And we look at this sort of like, the cannabis industry is at a crossroads. We try to prevent the responsible Ohio type situation here in Michigan. There were similar people who want to create a very exclusive market. You know, we call it sort of uh, monopoly market type provisions, you know, having 10 or 12 big growers in the state. We want the exact opposite here. And you know, we want everyone to be able to participate in this if you're an adult. And um, we fought very hard for that. And so we kind of look at Michigan as litmus tests. Like, we could see states going towards, you know, very restrictive models of control, even the state owning um, dispensaries and things like that, places like Pennsylvania, and that's how they handle alcohol. And then you have states doing like CBD or smokeless only products. So, you know, all these reforms could go one way or another. They could go towards that very tight regulated model. They could go towards more what we like to call like a people's model. And that was our goal. So we hope that with Michigan, um, we try to be careful how we talk about this, but since we're, you know, I'm talking to you here at Gondrepreneur and your, your listeners are hopefully most, mostly pro-cannabis, uh, you know, we believe this is the best cannabis law to date in the United States for, for several reasons. I want to talk to you a bit more about some of the details in the ballot and, and some of the uh, pitfalls and, and what goes on with the whole process. But before we get into all that, I want to take a short break. This is Gondrepreneur.com podcast from T.G. Brandfall. This episode of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast is made possible by Name.com, a global provider of domain name, web hosting, and email services. Every successful cannabis business needs an online presence, and every successful online presence begins with a domain. From your website to your email address, a good domain is easy for your customers to remember, it looks nice on a business card or billboard, and it reflects the true identity of the project it represents. It's important to reserve your domain early on when you are starting your business, as you may find that the .com address for your preferred brand or concept has already been taken. If somebody has already purchased the ideal .com for your business, they might be willing to sell it, but if they aren't, you may have to get creative with one of the new alternate domain extensions, such as .co, .club, .shop, or even .farm. Reserve your domain name today at name.com slash gondrepreneur. 
If you are a domain name investor or venture capital firm interested in acquiring or advertising premium cannabis domains, go to the Gondrepreneur Domain Market to browse a wide variety of names, including strains.com, cannabismedia.com, mj.com, and countless others. Discover branding opportunities for your next startup and learn about listing your premium domain names for sale at gondrepreneur.com slash domains, sponsored by name.com. Welcome back to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, T.G. Brandfall, here with Jeff Hank, founder of Am I Legalized? Uh, so before the break, you were uh, talking about uh, the, the new... The new push in Michigan, uh, your new ballot initiative. Um, before we get into the details of that initiative, c- can you tell me more about the process? I, I see all the, all the time on Facebook, you guys are offering training courses and uh, meetups and things like that. So, so how what what are these training courses like, and and what do you guys you know discuss when when you get together? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a great team of people working on this, and uh, some of them are volunteers. A few of them are our staff. Um, you know, what we learned is that everybody, so many people want marijuana to be legalized. Um, the problem is getting people actively engaged to work to make that happen, or getting them to write the, you know, write the big checks necessary to pay someone else to do the work. Because it just can't. I don't want to say it can't be done by volunteers, but it is an, an enormous task, which is really more suited to almost like a corporate model of running a campaign. You you have to have uh, bodies in the street working. So those people who are doing that have to be efficient and they have to be trained. Well, we lose a lot of signatures from people just because they don't know how to petition. It's not something that most people do. I mean, everyone's like aware that you can petition, but most people haven't actually done it. And it's a, uh, it's an interesting thing, but once you learn how to do it, it's, it's pretty straightforward and easy. So what, what does someone need to learn? Uh, well, it's just the basics. So like in Michigan, we have 83 counties. Every, every single county has to have its own petition sheet. So if you live in Wayne County and I live in Ingham County, you know, Detroit and Lansing, we don't sign the same petition sheet. So a petitioner has to, in theory, have up to 83 different petition sheets for every Michigan County there is. Um, you have to make sure it's filled out properly. It's signed and dated properly and all that kind of stuff. So we just lose a lot of, um, we lose some potentially good signatures from errors on petitions that could be avoided. So one of the things we're just trying to do is to train these grassroots volunteers to accurately fill out petitions. Then also just to make sure that they're aware of the law. I mean, it, it cracks me up because people always love to talk about like the law and you know what we're doing or whatever, but I find most people don't actually or haven't actually read it. So, um, you know, we just want to make sure that our petitioners who are out there on the street talking to people understand the nuances of the law, because you do get people who are very interested, very curious. They may even want to read it on the street and they may have questions. So we just try to make sure everybody's well informed. And, you know, there's a since our petitioners are volunteers, you know, there's a sort of a a black stain on the industry of professional petitioning where some of these professional petitioners who work for money, they really misrepresent the petitions on the street. You know, they just, they're out there to try to get as many signatures they can as fast as they can by any means necessary. And that's sort of due to just the timing and what you have to do. I'm not making an excuse for it, but you know, they're desperate to get those signatures because if they don't, they're not going to make the ballot. Well, and that can, that can, I mean, I'm sorry, but that can lead to legal challenges by dis- district attorneys who say that, you know, they, they were misrepresenting what the petition does. That ha- that's happened in, in other states. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we're trying to prevent that kind of stuff. This is about legal compliance, but it's also about educating the, the citizens because, you know, if we have a couple hundred people out there every day and they're interacting with a couple hundred people themselves every day, that starts adding up over time. So, you know, we want people when they've talked to a petitioner to feel like they're getting told the truth then, you know, they can get any information they need. And that's really important because we want those people not only to sign the petition, but to come out to vote. We want them to tell their friends and neighbors and all that. So, I mean, we really look at this as a, it's not just a smash and grab campaign. This is serious, like hearts and minds, you know, change one, you know, each one, teach one, every person that can be educated on this issue or has a good interaction with us or somebody working on the campaign generally, hopefully is, is converted into an actionable voter later on and, and a proponent for the cause. Because, you know, w- w- what we find is, you know, you have a percentage of people and it's hard to put a number on it, but let's just say 30 to 40% of people who are probably just going to vote no on marijuana. Um, unless you can have a, a good conversation with them and educate them in sort of a, you know, respectable 
respectful way, you're not likely to change their mind. So what we try to do is, you know, we're not trying to force anybody or, you know, argue through somebody through some forceful persuasion, but we want to educate people. And we think if we do that politely and nicely in the right way, um, you know, one by one, we're going to start making that number lower and we'll, we'll win. So that's the, that's the purpose behind it. And, you know, one of the things we got a lot of people last time, um, didn't have that training or, you know, they, they complain like, Oh, they didn't know where to get petitions. So we've just spent a lot of time right now making it publicly known. If you want a petition, you can come to all these meetings. We have people up in the upper peninsula right now, all over the state. We're trying to go to every area. So anybody who wants to learn how to do this, anybody who, who's never done it has that opportunity and can get informed. And that's, that's really the purpose of it. So in your, so the, the ballot initiative, you're, you're trying to legalize adult use cannabis as has been done in, you know, Colorado, California, Massachusetts, Maine, uh, Washington, uh, Oregon. Um, so, and, and so since, you know, you guys have these other sort of laws to work with in other states, How'd you, how'd you determine what the best practices are uh, for your petition? Right. Well, we took a lot of what we did in 2016. That was sort of our starting template as, as Am I Legalized. Now, what was different about this petition and the last one is we solely wrote the last one on our own, and that was done by a committee, an elected committee of uh, Michigan activists and lawyers and, and whatnot. This time we worked with some other groups, including Michigan Normal, uh, the Marijuana Policy Project, the Drug Policy Alliance, um, the ACLU of Michigan, and various you know trade and industry groups. So we, we kind of took a mishmash of, okay, what did MI Legalize have in its petition last time, and what are the most po- – you know, we – we created our first petition based on popular consensus. You know, we didn't like do things like, Oh, this is just popular. Let's do it. But we actually tried to say, you know, what is it that like your average person would be willing to accept? And what would, what would your, you know, your cannabis industry people be willing to accept as sort of a ground floor. And we spent two years doing that. So we kind of had a a pretty good idea of what people in Michigan are, are willing to accept. And it's fascinating because, you know, you can look at these other States and like you talk to someone, from some state where they have, they're only allowed to grow like four plants. And they think that, you know, maybe a lot of the people think that's like an acceptable amount for a personal home grow. But here in Michigan, people are so used to the medical marijuana act that they think having 12 or 72 plants is like the bare minimum. Right. So, you know, we just have certain local conditions that, that have caused people to, you know, take certain policy uh, positions. So we took like what we could from MI Legalize, which was still relevant and which was crafted before the state passed its own regulatory structure. So we had to kind of adapt to that. And then we used the, you know, the expertise of the national groups to say, okay, what worked in November, 2016 in the states that, that won, what, you know, what led to Arizona being the one state that failed and how can we try to avoid all those mistakes in Michigan? And, um, one of one was first, just not having two petitions. So we had to you know, work really hard in, in a coalition to come up with one petition we could all support, which thankfully did happen. Um, and the rest was just sort of looking at state by state, you know, what's what's best. And, you know, we're we're pretty uh, at MI Legalize anyway. You know, we come from the from the activist uh, quilt of the uh, cannabis uh, family, if you will. So for us, you know, we're we're about principles. So like we, we argued very hard on these things of like you have to have at least 12 plants per adult to be able to grow. You know, we have to have higher possession limits than these other states. You know, we, we wanted no possession limit. Um, you know, we wanted strong possession limits for keeping the fruit of your own harvest. Um, we wanted, you know, good penalties being only civil infractions rather than crimes. Um, we wanted to make sure you could grow hemp without a bunch of state interference, you know? So we kind of looked at how do these, how is these things played out in other States? And we know that we're, you know, almost a year and a half still away from the election. So how could we create something hopefully that had the things that were already popular in Michigan, but sort of to the extent we could, foresee what the what the arguments of opponents and other people may be up to 2018 and we know most of those from the other states and it's dealing with like what about the kids and edibles and driving so you know we tried to get a little more uh, ahead of those issues than we did last time and i think what we came up with was a was a law that um prevented sort of the, you know, the monopoly market responsible Ohio type stuff. We have this micro business proposal, which would allow any adult over 21 to apply for a license to grow up to 150 plants and you could sell directly to consumers. That was designed in part as sort of a way for people who are caregivers um, and who may be moving into a market, but not necessarily moving into the full medical 
larger cultivation market or something to be able to basically double the production they currently do and uh, be able to serve adults as well and all that. We kept the Medical Marijuana Act untouched. It's a big, big deal here locally. Nobody wants their rights under the Medical Marijuana Act, which are pretty pretty broad to be infringed by this new law. So the Medical Marijuana Act and your rights as a patient and caregiver are still protected. And um, I'm probably leaving out a bunch of stuff, but you know that's what we kind of looked at as the best practices. They said, we want to push the limits on civil liberties as far as we can go compared to other states, which um, we did. And we want to make sure that it's a fair, as fair and open a market as, as we possibly can, can make it. Did you guys include... Uh you know, so-called equity rules uh, that would require licenses to go to underserved communities such as those in Detroit? We did. It's not, uh, it's not a firm requirement, but it is in the law that the State Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs is supposed to look at exactly what you just said and that, you know, has in mind particularly minority communities in Detroit, and maybe Flint, some, anywhere, really. But to make sure that people who have been disproportionately affected by cannabis laws are not kept out of this market. So those rules, um, we didn't specifically craft the details of them, but the provision is in there for LARA, the state agency, to implement those and to, to study and report on this issue over time. So, you know, if we get a year or two into this and um, it's clear that, like, you know, minority applicants are not um, receiving application, you know, licenses in proportion to the population or something like that, then the state can remedy that. So, yeah, that was really important. And the other big one was the expungement of past criminal records, which we fought really hard to put in uh, to, the, to the law. And we studied it for months. And there were so many legal concerns. And this is why we didn't put it in in 2016. Um, we all wanted it in there. That's a big, big piece of it. And it's, it, it's very popular, too, even with people who don't support cannabis. But um, at the end of the day, so many legal concerns over it. And after having been through what we went through last time, we're a little, you know, to be honest, we're a little nervous about legal challenges. So it just, you know, we thought, okay, if we spend another million or two dollars and work our asses off again for another six months on this, and then we're kept off the ballot again because one provision in the law and, and, and expungement in Michigan is, a, is an odd thing because Michigan's petition laws, we don't have a single subject rule here, but we have this other thing <clears throat> called these multi-object or multi-title challenges. And unlike other challenges to, to laws, if they were to find that provision unconstitutional or unlawful for whatever reason, it actually would, would invalidate or potentially invalidate the entire initiative. In some situations, when you have an unconstitutional or unlawful provision, that provision is severable. So just basically that provision won't apply, but everything else does. But because of this concern that it would actually tank the whole initiative, we just it was too big of a concern. So that was a real you know letdown for us. But we, the social justice issues were uh, were very much on our mind, and that's one of the reasons we fought so hard to have you know try to have an open market and have low barriers of entry, so that you know it wouldn't just be uh, millionaires and, and whatnot you know getting into this into this market. Now I know that you're entrenched with this current uh, campaign, but is is expungement of cannabis, low-level cannabis possession crimes or, or what have you. Is that something that could be another ballot push in the future? Yeah. And in fact, we even talked about, we even thought about doing it this year, but we were concerned that, you know, it was taking on too much at once. So part of the MI legalized goal, and this is something we're discussing internally is, you know, sort of what's next. We started out, you know, with the goal to legalize um, cannabis in Michigan. And that's sort of like our sole purpose. Um, we work with all these other groups, we support things, but you know, that's really our purpose, but we're looking at this as now, um, not only, you know, may we end up morphing into an organization that uh, supports candidates and, and local ballot proposals, but perhaps we do another ballot proposal in uh, 2020, which would be the expungement of criminal records. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason why we're trying to train all these grassroots people, because we want this to be an investment in the people of the state of Michigan, not just, you know, a, a one you know, one and done campaign. We want these people to be here for the long term because the implementation period of this law is going to, it's going to be several years of battles likely too at the local level. So by 2020, maybe that will be our next uh, primary focus will be the expungement. Um, there's also a school of thought that the legislature, as they have in other states, may address this issue for us once we legalize cannabis. So it's definitely on the table for discussion. And, you know, depending on what happens, that, that may be the next big project. I want to talk to you a bit further about, uh, cannabis policy in the Midwest. Uh, but before we do that, we got to take our last break. This is the Entrepreneur.com podcast. I'm T.G. Brandfall. 
At Gontrepreneur, we have heard from dozens of cannabis business owners who have encountered the issue of canna bias, which is when a mainstream business, whether a landlord, bank, or some other provider of vital business services, refuses to do business with them simply because of their association with cannabis. We have even heard stories of businesses being unable to provide health and life insurance for their employees because the insurance providers were too afraid to work with them. We believe that this fear is totally unreasonable and that cannabis business owners deserve access to the same services and resources that other businesses are afforded, that they should be able to hire consultation to help them follow the letter of the law in their business endeavors, and that they should be able to provide employee benefits without needing to compromise on the quality of coverage they can offer. This is why we created the Gondrepreneur.com Business Service Directory, a resource for cannabis professionals to find and connect with service providers who are cannabis-friendly and who are actively seeking cannabis industry clients. If you are considering hiring a business consultant, lawyer, accountant, web designer, or any other ancillary service for your business, go to Gondrepreneur.com businesses to browse hundreds of agencies, firms, and organizations who support cannabis legalization and who want to help you grow your business. With so many options to choose from in each service category, you will be able to browse company profiles and do research on multiple companies in advance so you can find the provider who is the best fit for your particular need. Our business service directory is intended to be a useful and well-maintained resource, which is why we individually vet each listing that is submitted. If you are a business service provider who wants to work with cannabis clients, you may be a good fit for our service directory. Go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to create your profile and start connecting with cannabis entrepreneurs today. Welcome back to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, T.G. Brandfold, here with Jeffrey Hank, founder of MI Legalized. Um, so, you know, talking about uh, cannabis policy in the Midwest, you know, it seems right now that Michigan's leading the way. Um, you know, Wisconsin, they have a CBD-only law. Indiana, same sort of limited uh, limited cannabis, medical cannabis regime. Ohio, we had, we had discussed, you know, they, they had that responsible Ohio uh, ballot question that, that, that was defeated a few years ago. And it was primarily over concerns that it was a monopoly-type law, that activists didn't like it. So w- looking at the Midwest as a whole, you know, w- the odds are good that, that Michigan is next, is, you know, it does legalize. They'd be the first state in the Midwest to have adult-use cannabis. What what would happen next? You know, Ohio again came close. Wisconsin, Indiana, their laws are so far behind the rest of the country. You know, is there any chance there? What what are your kind of feelings about the Midwest? Yeah, well, it's fascinating because when we started this a few years ago, we started our one of our sort of talking points was to the north of us in Canada, it's going to be legal because Trudeau had announced it at that time, and to the South of us, we thought that maybe, you know, responsible Ohio would pass. And, you know, it was astounding to see the voters reject it so hard. And as you mentioned, Ed, it wasn't because of cannabis. It was because of the monopoly market type stuff. So, you know, the Midwest kind of got a two-year, three-year delay because of Ohio and Michigan, unfortunately. We could have we popped this whole thing off much earlier. Now, I've been up over to Ontario and uh, Toronto and the family there and whatnot, and it's a great cannabis culture there, too. And so we're seeing some of that is influencing us here in Michigan anyway, and we'll probably continue to do so. The uh, Canadian operators are all over Michigan right now seeking to get into the industry here, and they're kind of uh, ahead of us a little bit, too. So I think you're going to see a press, um, assuming Michigan goes, um, for these other states to move, there's whispers that the Illinois legislature could do something about this. Um, I think you will see Ohio go with the initiative process. You know, maybe they'll get something together even for next year. I, I, I'm not aware of that, but, um, you know, I've heard rumors of it. And I know by 2020, there's national um, groups planning to, to go there and all that. So hopefully we will set the stage here in the center of the country for a model for the surrounding states to emulate. And hopefully, you know, again, like you said a minute ago, the entire country is going to have to decide these things on a state-by-state basis unless the feds change the whole game. So we're hoping that we will inspire other activists in other states to look at what we did, what, what we did here in Michigan as a model 
and to really fight hard and believe that you can do it. And it takes a lot of work, but if you, if you bring people together and you have a good plan and you spend the time, you know, it, it can be done. So I, I hope that we inspire people more than anything else to push for the things that they actually want to see. Because one of the things I've, I've found out, I like, I like to talk about little old ladies, but like I talk to a lot of little old ladies and they're some of my favorite constituents because they're usually pretty simple, simple, uh, factual type people. And they'll say, you know, I remember when marijuana was, was, wasn't illegal and I've been watching it for 60 years and this is ridiculous. You know, they're just so, uh, straightforward about this. And I think that, you know, when, when that kind of demographic is ready to vote for this, um, we're going to win and we're going to change things. So as people are seen, one of the things that we've noticed even recently in, in surveying the Michigan public is they look out west or they look to Massachusetts or Maine or wherever and they say everything's fine. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, like, like, you know, it was one thing when it was just Colorado, but now you have all these other states and, you know, we're kind of scratching, you know, you see politicians even scratching their heads and kind of saying, all right, you know, how do you, you know, the, the, there's just the reality of it being in your face and people knowing someone who lives in California or Nevada or wherever and seeing all these reality TV shows. And I mean, it's become mainstream and you got Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart, you know, making jokes on their cooking show. I mean, I just think like your average person and even these, you know, I'll go back to the little old grandmas and stuff are seeing this and they realize like it's fairly inconsequential. Um, it, it's not inconsequential in the fact that, you know, it's, it's helping people when we legalize because the most dangerous thing about cannabis is being arrested with it. But, you know, they're, they're realizing that it's not this, this reefer madness thing. Right. And, and, and more than, than anything, I think we can even do, it's just these natural things playing out that is, that is changing the general consciousness. So, um, I'd like to think we'll lead the way here in Michigan. And again, that other people will look to us and, and push back on these things like CBD only or non-smokable forms only. I mean, you know, Florida is Florida and Texas are the big states to look to, I think, coming up in the near future. Texas still arrests 70,000 people for marijuana. They don't have the initiative process. However, there's legislators down there in Texas with that libertarian streak. And I think if you can get you know, if Michigan can go and we can get one or two other Midwest states to go and you get one of those other big states, whether it be Florida or Texas or maybe even New York or something, um, at that point, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I got to imagine, you know, the, the rest of the country will follow suit for the most part or it's going to eventually cause action at the federal level. And what, what I hear right now anyway is – all those West Coast states and Maine and Massachusetts, you know, all their Congress people are clamoring to solve the banking problems and they're clamoring to solve a lot of these other regulatory issues that are sort of holding up the normalization of, of cannabis commerce. And if that stuff gets solved in the next year, um, we don't have to deal with any of it here in Michigan at all. Hopefully will be resolved by the time we're on the ballot. And um, I think if those things are resolved federally, you know, everything will just sort of fall into place. I mean, maybe that's too rosy of an assessment because nothing's guaranteed, but it just seems like the trend is finally going to, you know, headed in the right direction and the, the, the cat's out of the bag, if you will. So that's, that's really my goal here is to make sure we win and hopefully provide a good model for people elsewhere to learn from our, our, uh, our successes, but also our, our failures. So what advice do you have for advocates in the few states with initiative processes that might attempt to undertake this, this, uh, this initiative uh, push. Plenty of advice, but to start, you know, start early, start plenty of time, do your research on what are, your, what are the laws in your individual states, and then, you know, start organizing. And you have to, you have to look at this, uh, how, how we started, we, we tried to unify and organize the cannabis community just to the extent we could, which, you know, we can make all sorts of jokes about that. I, I kind of like to refer to it as, as herding stray cats because, uh, you know, cannabis people are our passionate people and they have strong opinions. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those too, but we have to realize that when you're crafting an initiative or a law, no one, unless you're like the sole person writing it, no one's going to get exactly what, the, what you want. So try to start with the base. You got to have the base. And if you can get a, a large enough portion of the base to agree on some policy, you know, help, you know, get a few experts to help craft the language and make sure you, gra you craft good language and then make sure you get an election law lawyer to look it over to make sure it's, it's kosher with your state election laws and then spend the time going around and trying to make an inclusive organization that brings people in. And if you have a good plan and you have an open door, I think you have the basis for a recipe for success. 
the the hard part is, you know, doing all the work or raising all the money. Now, with most of these states already, a lot of the big states already legalizing, and you know, you're seeing the, you know this next next circle come up. Um, I think you're going to find more and more money pouring into these things because um, industry people who want to support it are are going to be making more money, particularly if they're in a, in a legal state right now. They're they're able to then see the the benefit of investing in a political campaign to change laws to to open the doors for business. So I think money will be available for people uh, more so in the future than it was for us last time, or you know maybe when there's you know six or seven campaigns at once versus if there's only one or two. So you know in a nutshell, it's just do your due diligence and you know try to do the best you can to overcome whatever personal dramas you have. I mean, that's something that we've, we've, I know, uh, um, I've heard have, uh, led to some of their problems in Ohio. There's so much infighting and drama within the cannabis community that they, they, they couldn't put, put forward a unified effort. We've had things like that happen in Michigan where we have people who ought to be on the same side generally, um, you know, attacking each other, kind of like the, the, uh, perfect is the enemy of the good or, you know, the good's the enemy of the perfect or whatever you want to say it. Um, you're not going to probably get that with a ballot initiative. So, you know, put together the best plan you can that you think the voters of your state, uh, would be willing to enact and, and go for it. And don't be afraid to fail and don't listen to anybody who tells you you can't do it. If, if when I started this thing out and, you know, it wasn't just me, there were a lot of other people involved. I can't tell you how many people we went to and they just didn't want anything to do with it because they just thought it was such a daunting task. And you just have to be stubborn and you just have to have tunnel vision and you just have to realize what your mission is and you just have to go for it. And those people who, uh, it's like the field of dreams. If you build it, they'll come. If you build a good law with an inclusive organization and you're not full of drama, I think people will be attracted to it and they're going to be willing to do the work. Uh, that said, it's a lot of work, so take your time to do it. Um, a lot of political experts tell me it takes two or three attempts at the ballot sometimes in states to get something passed. And, and that's not just marijuana, that's ballot initiatives generally. Uh, we're probably at a time now where if you have a good marijuana plan and you put it before voters in most states, you're going to have majority support. So if you can kind of keep those parameters in mind, um, you should be successful. And if anybody is really serious about running a statewide campaign and wants to talk personally, feel free to you know, shoot us an info, uh, an, e an email at info at milegalized.com, I-N-F-O. And uh, we'd be happy to have a conversation with you to help you, particularly if you're a, you're a grassroots group. Well, I, I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time to come on the show. And uh, you're, you're really a fountain of knowledge, especially when it comes to uh, the, the, the balloting process, you know. And, and um, you know, I really want to wish you guys the, the absolute best of luck here in Michigan and hope that, you know, the next time, the next, the next interview that we have, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's no longer a theory that, that we've actually gotten to an adult use market in, in Michigan. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Sebastiano. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfall. Gontrepreneur.com.